atmospheric heaven and outer space heaven. Of course, heaven where God dwells doesn't have to be recreated. It's already perfect. It's only this world and its surrounding atmosphere, because who's the prince of the power of the air? Yeah, it's only this world and its atmosphere. In fact, the entire universe has been corrupted by sin. The, heaven, the heavens of heaven, the third heaven where God dwells, doesn't need to be recreated. It's perfect. So when Paul says, I saw a new heaven, he's talking about the atmosphere. But primarily, I think he's speaking of celestial heaven, stellar heaven, you know, where the planets are. And what is God going to do with that? I have no idea. Can you imagine? People say, I don't want to go to heaven. Sitting on a cloud playing a harp for eternity doesn't exactly thrill them. Well, how ignorant is that? You know, why do you think God made the universe so big? One of my feelings is he did it because when he recreates it and we're able to travel it at the speed of thought, I'm telling you, it'll take you eternity to explore it. You won't be bored in heaven, believe me. It's going to be awesome. So John said, still in verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Listen, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And again, folks, everything which has been defiled by sin and Satan is going to be purged by fire and made brand new. And once again, the earth was defiled by sin and it will be destroyed. The atmosphere, of course, is the domain of the devil, is the prince of the power of the air. And so these things are going to be purged or purified by fire. In other words, they're going to be burned up and God will recreate, will replace them. And at the end of verse 1, he said this little cryptic statement, and there will be no more sea. Now, for those of you who like sailing and surfing, I don't know who here is a surfer, but some of you may have lived in the West Coast or East Coast and, or in the South and like to catch a wave now and then. Um, but you know what? I don't know why God is going to do away with the oceans and the seas of the world in eternity. I don't know why. Uh, many suggest it's because they won't be needed any longer to purify the earth of pollutants because there won't be any pollution on the new earth. One author put it this way, said, Over 70% of the surface of our world is covered with salt water. The average depth of the ocean is, between, is about 2.3 miles. Why does our planet need such a massive covering of salt water? Answer, to cleanse the earth and to make, it, make life possible. The earth is bathed in God's great antiseptic solution composed of about 96% water, 3.5% salt, about 0.5% trace constituents like chlorine, magnesium, calcium, and the like. The salty brine of the ocean purges, cleanses, and preserves our planet, making it fit to live in. Many of the pollutants and waste we produce get washed out of the soil and into our streams and rivers. The rivers wash these materials into the sea. The antiseptic salinity of the sea absorbs scrubs and breaks down these pollutants and wastes. The sun heats the sea, causing only pure, clean water vapor to float up into the sky, forming clouds which bring refreshing rain back to the land, a continuous cycle of cleansing and renewal. But in the new heaven and new earth, there will be no more pollution, no more decay, no more need of cleansing, and thus no more need for a salty sea, end quote. I think that's probably as good as explanation as any. One thing I will point out that some have brought out, just because God promises no more salt seas or oceans doesn't necessarily mean there's not going to be any water of any kind. I think that what John is basically saying is that obviously the earth as we know it is going to be vastly different in the new earth. 
No more 70% covered with salt water. We don't need it anymore. Does that mean God won't have any water in the new, on the new earth? Well, we, we're going to read next time about a river of life that flows. Uh, it could be there will be small areas of water. We don't know. We just know that from a cleansing position, we won't need it. But, you know, there's also something about the sea that has been kind of ominous. In fact, the Jews were not seafaring people. You realize that? The Jews never maintained a, a navy. Uh, the Jews uh, were actually very fearful of the open sea. Not that they didn't travel by open sea ever, but they were not comfortable on the open sea. They were not a seafaring people like the Phoenicians or others, all right? And part of it was because the Jews, you know, it was something about the sea. It was ominous. Uh, there's an interesting verse in Isaiah, I forgot to pull it up, where it talks about Satan having his throne in the midst of the sea. Jesus in Matthew 8, I believe, rebuked the sea, okay, when it was raging and things. You don't rebuke an animate object. It was obviously some kind of demonic thing going on with the sea. But the sea separates. It divides. It was because of man's sin that the earth was originally divided. At one time, all the landmass was one. And so we're going to be moving out of redemptive history where sin has totally been dealt with. The curse has been absolutely lifted. There should be no reason why God would continue to keep the earth separated through by the seas. He would want to bring us together, right? One of the reasons he separated the world was because man had gotten together to build a tower up to the heavens to worship the heavens, which was the sun, the stars, and so on. And God says, you know, anything, they, they speak one language, and anything they put their mind to will not be withheld from them. So God confounded the languages and eventually divided the land. Well, in the new heavens and new earth, there's going to be no rebellion. There's no reason. We're all going to speak the same language. What will that be? I don't know if it's going to be a heavenly language or even pure Hebrew. We don't know. But we do know that there won't be any need for the world to be divided by the oceans any longer. So just a very different world, something that we have a hard time even imagining right now. All right, finally, verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice the emphasis here. John says, then I, John. It's almost like he is just shocked that he's able to see this. And he wants his readers to understand that he's not getting this from an angel. He says, I saw it with my own eyes. And don't you know that the new heavens and the new earth, I believe, are going to be a totally spectacular thing to see. But they are both eclipsed, overshadowed by this beautiful city called New Jerusalem, which John sees descending out of heaven. Let me um, share something that I don't necessarily think is accurate, but it might be. And since a lot of people talk about it and a lot of people hold to it, uh, let me share it with you, and that is that it doesn't say here that God creates this new Jerusalem. It says it comes down out of heaven. There are those that believe that during the millennial kingdom, the new Jerusalem is going to be orbiting the earth. Now, during the when we finally have the new, hev the new heavens and the new earth, it's going to land on the earth. But see, the earth during the millennial kingdom is not going to be redeemed. New Jerusalem is going to be a perfect city. And, and what they point to is different scriptures which talk about New Jerusalem being not in the future tense, but 
right now in the present tense. And they believe that this thing is going to orbit the earth during the millennial kingdom, and we as the redeemed are going to live there. Of course, we'll have our glorified bodies. We'll be able to come to and from New Jerusalem orbiting the earth to the earth to oversee different things because we'll be ruling with the Lord. And then I guess at night we beam up to the, to the, to the New Jerusalem. Now, I don't, necessarily, I don't necessarily hold to that view, but a lot of people will tell you that. That's what's going to happen, so I'll throw it out. For you to consider uh, what you want to do with that, I don't know. But um, at one point, it comes down out of heaven. And I believe it's going to touch down on the earth. Now, here's the deal. We're going to learn later on this city is massive. It's 1,500 miles square, cubed. That's roughly the size of the moon. Which means the earth cannot be in its new created state, the new earth cannot be the same size it is right now. Because if you put the moon right now on this earth, it would tip it over. So God is going to make the earth much bigger, much bigger. And this city, the new Jerusalem is going to sit right there on it and uh, be pretty spectacular. John calls it, though, the holy city. It is the only city that's ever existed that will be truly holy. This won't be, by the way, the new Jerusalem will not be heaven. It will be heaven's capital. All right? It will be heaven's capital. We know it's not going to be heaven because heaven, I believe, is infinite. This is limited. It's big, 1,500 miles cubed, but it's still limited. It can't be heaven. It's going to be heaven's capital. But I think the whole universe is going to be a part of heaven. I think we're going to live in New Jerusalem. We're going to travel heaven for eternity. After a million years exploring, zipping back, you know, and, and checking in and saying hi to everybody and then plotting, planning our next trip. And, I mean, it's going to be awesome. Exploring the universe. Every planet more beautiful than the one before it. Awesome time. Now, the second statement here, though, that, uh, that John gives, um, and when he gives it, he gives us more insight into this city, this, this new Jerusalem. He said, it's coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I like what Ray Stedman said. He was a pastor for many years. He's with the Lord now. He said, we all love weddings. The climax of every wedding is that moment when the bride makes her entrance at the beginning of the aisle, beautifully dressed for her husband. All heads turn. You hear that collective intake of breath as every eye instantly captivated by the literally breathtaking sight of the beautiful adorned bride. In that moment, the poor fellow standing at the altar in his rented tux is completely forgotten. It is the bride so achingly beautiful in her white gown and gossamer veil. That has captured all eyes and every heart. And I think that that's kind of why John called it like a bride adorned for her husband. I mean, as he's looking at the new heavens and the new earth, I mean, it's got to be pretty spectacular, right? And all of a sudden, his eyes catch this city. What is the city going to be like that John just stops and goes, Oh, my goodness. I cannot believe how beautiful this thing is. It's like a bride that has been adorned for her husband. You know how that goes. And as the you know, as grooms, we can't see our bride. Uh, you know, in her dress until the moment she appears at the back of the church, making her way down the aisle. And at that moment, wow, 
Well, John says that this city is going to be unlike anything we've ever even imagined. I mean, what kind of a place is this that God has prepared for us? In fact, in verse 2, where John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The word prepared there in verse 2 is the same Greek word used by Jesus when he told his disciples in John 14, verse 2, In my Father's house there are many, what? Mansions. Dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare what? A place for you. The same Greek word is used when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And now we read, this city was prepared by God. I believe that the New Jerusalem is going to be the fulfillment of the promise Jesus gave to us 2,000 years ago. That's why it's so spectacular. Some people have said, you know, if God made this world in six days, and how beautiful some parts of it are truly, just so beautiful, what is that place like that he's been preparing for us for 2,000 years? Well, here it is. And John was in that meeting, wasn't he? John heard that promise. And here is the fulfillment. And he's like, wow, this is incredible. It's spectacular beyond even I, anything I can... In fact, it's so beautiful, it's so spectacular, John can't even describe it. So you know how he does it? He uses the negatives. There's going to be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. How do you describe something you've never been able to, you've never really seen before? Sometimes all you can do is say, well, here's what it's not like. Just telling people, using something they already know. Well, it won't have any of that. It won't have any pollution. It won't have any crime. And the more you start hearing that, the better it sounds, right? But to really understand what it is going to be all like in the positive, you have to wait to see it. So here we see this place finally prepared. And so the new Jerusalem is going to be our heavenly capital city. It's always been the heart of God's people. I think up until just this last generation, all of God's people have always truly yearned for this city. In Hebrews 11, verse 16, talking about some of the great examples of faith throughout the history of God's people. But it says in verse 16, But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Turn to Hebrews 11. And we read in verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He left the Ur of the Chaldees, the modern area of Iraq, uh, the cradle of civilization, basically. Abraham started out as an idol-worshiping Gentile. But God called them away from all the idolatry of that area of the Ur of the Chaldees to start a new nation using him. When he crossed the Euphrates, he became a Hebrew. The word Euphrates means, or the word Hebrew means one who crosses over. The Euphrates symbolized the border of the world. And so God was calling Abraham out from the world and when he did, he separated him from the pagans and made him a Hebrew. And from that moment on, even though Abraham had great wealth, 
God never, although he promised him a great country, he never gave to him anything, not even enough land to put his foot on. He was just a, a pilgrim and a sojourner in the land of Canaan. He did buy a piece of land big enough to bury Sarah, and so, but that was about it. But in Hebrews 11, verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place uh, which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. It's all by faith, a walk of faith, literally. By faith he dwelt in a land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, verse 10, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. See, Abraham recognized that from the time God called him away from the Ur of the Chaldees and his house, his home, he was now a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. And he had his heart set on not finding a new city on the earth to make it his home. He had his heart set on a city that God would make and give to him. And all of us who have the same faith Abraham had in the God of the Bible. So the great examples of faith throughout the history of God's people have been people that have realized this earth is not their home any longer. They are no longer earth dwellers. Remember that phrase used 11 times in Revelation? Always talks about unbelievers who have made this world their true home. Now, we live here. We have to. We're still living on the earth. This is not our home. Our home is heaven, and in particular, the New Jerusalem. And until we get there, we will never really be home. It reminds me of a true story of a man named Samuel Morrison. Samuel Morrison was coming back from Africa after serving 25 years there as a missionary. It's a long time to serve God in a very difficult circumstance. 25 years serving in Africa as a missionary, finally coming home for all this time, happened to be on the same ocean liner that President Teddy Roosevelt was on. He had been in Africa for three weeks on a hunting safari. And when the ship started to get very near to New York Harbor, Morrison saw that there were thousands of people cheering. I mean, the bands were playing. The signs were waving. The confetti was flying, right? I mean, people were just going nuts, all welcoming home President Teddy Roosevelt. Morrison noticed that nobody was there to greet him home. In fact, it was so crowded and chaotic, he couldn't even get a taxi. So he's walking to where he had to, his destination. No, no doubt somebody had opened their home, and he was walking to the destination. And he was upset. And he said, Lord, with all due respect to President Roosevelt, he went on a three-week hunting trip, and practically the whole state of New York has come out to welcome him home. I've been serving you for 25 years in Africa, and I come home and there's nobody to welcome me. And Morrison said, God spoke to him very clearly and said, Son, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. Let's never forget that. Don't expect the world to applaud the work you do for God. But you can't give a cup of cold water to one of his disciples in his name. But what he won't reward you for. When you get home, we're not home yet. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, 
and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. John said, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. What's the most important thing about this new city? Is it the streets of gold? Is it the jewels that make up the foundation? We'll talk more about this next time. What is the most important thing about this city? It's beauty or the fact that God dwells there. You know, I was at a, uh, a dinner for a ministry a couple years ago, and the speaker, who's a pastor, said something that I've never forgotten. He said to his church one day, he said, do you folks really, really love Jesus? I mean, do you really love him? He said, what if heaven had all the people you loved and you had eternity to just rejoice and fellowship, but Jesus was not there? Would that really bother you? You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.